welcome to episode 29 of Tall Poppy. I'm your host, Tathra Strait. If you've ever had the thought that leadership is something you're born with and just can't really be taught, this episode's for you. Especially if you feel in your gut that that's just not the case. Joshua Spodek thought the same thing and then discovered it wasn't true. He started out in the sciences, in astrophysics, and didn't really value emotions or even relationships. And then as an entrepreneur bringing his invention to the world, he got some very visceral experiences as a leader in the business world, which eventually led him to teaching leadership. Often we think something is just the way it is, like leadership as innate rather than learned. Josh comes and tells us that we can cultivate skill through practice and the exercises he's been doing with his students and clients, and now we can all access it via his book, Leadership Step by Step, and his online courses. This book has only been out a few months and is getting rave reviews, which isn't a surprise to him given all the feedback he's been getting from his clients and students over the years in the classroom, boardroom, and more recently, online courses. We talk a fair bit about his own practices and something he calls Sidcha. And like Gus said in episode 27, it's less about what you know and more about what you do regularly that matters. Joshua really lives this and he's walking the talk and taking it to new levels. His diligence inspired me and I've begun to look at competition differently and have gone from hating burpees to doing them regularly. That is the last thing I expected from this interview. Welcome, Josh Spodek, to Tall Poppy. Thanks for being with us, Josh. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. So I'm going to start by asking you, where in the world are you? I'm in my apartment, which is in Manhattan's Greenwich Village, my favorite place in the world to live. I'm specifically at the counter facing into my kitchen. And for people who read my blog, they'll know that I, like, I'm looking right now at my pressure cooker, where oh, yeah. I... For people who have pressure cookers, they're the most amazing things. And I, uh, I've cooked these amazing vegetable stews. I've really gotten into cooking from total scratch, no packaging, no processed food, and I love it. Mm, great. So um, tell us a little bit about what it's like in New York at the moment. It's dusk. So if I look the other way outside, the sun has basically set. Uh, it's... We finally we had a a, a long a, a mild winter followed by a long tail of a winter. So we just yesterday had our first really warm day when you could go out and wear shorts. Today it got chilly again. Uh, we're still politically, everyone's still getting used to our our president, and that's mm-hmm. always in the news. Uh, let's see what else. It's I mean I I just love New York City. It's it's. Where I live downtown, anyone can do anything and everyone supports you as long as you're not hurting anyone. And that's one of the, my favorite things is like that ethos that it's very supportive, very accepting, and very diverse. Mm, right. So I'm going to move into um, your work. So tell us a little bit about what you do and what's important to you about it. I mean, the main, I do a lot of different things. Professionally, what I do most is I teach and I coach leadership and entrepreneurship and the, you know, what you call the soft skills of business. My background is in science. I have a PhD in astrophysics. And I think that that, I mean, there's a lot of in-between steps of going from one field to the other, 
But I think one of the things I bring that physics, our perspective from physics is we try to look at the underlying simplicity of things and to make things accessible. I know most people outside of physics think of physics as like really hard equations and mind bending stuff from Einstein. But to me, it's, we look for the simplicity and try to make things workable. And one of the major middle steps from, from uh, being in academia into teaching and coaching leadership and entrepreneurship is developing a practice of teaching experientially, active learning, project-based learning. And, that, and, and to me, that's as important. What I, how I teach is, is at least as important as what I teach. So I. So I, can you say a little bit more about that? Because I, I I think that's really important, especially the you know the the peer learning, the the interactive, because our education system used to be very didactic, very one way, very you know about rote learning. So for for those who may not have experienced um, a, a contrast to that, can you describe a little bit about what that actually looks like in the classroom? Yeah, and most in the beginning of the semester, I usually ask my classes. Has anyone here taken an active learning course before? And virtually no one has. Wow. So you say used to be a certain way. It's still pretty much that way as far as I can tell. And That's sad. Yeah, well. <laughs> but, but great that you're, you're doing it and that you're, you're bringing it especially to something as important as leadership. I, I, I certainly am driven. It's, I feel inspired to teach this way. I didn't come up with it. You know, I, I met other teachers who taught this way. And so, you know, 100 years ago, it was valuable to have manual labor. People worked in farms and factories. 50 years ago, it was important to be a knowledge worker, and it was good to have facts and factual recall. And in today's world, either robots and computers or computers are, they're either currently better at doing these things or soon will be. Yeah. But we still have an economy and we still have, you know, food that we have to get to people and buildings to build and roads and stuff like that. So we... If what do we need? I think we need to be able to find to identify problems that people have and ways of solving them in ways that they want you to be in their community and to be a part of to be a problem solver. And the skills And I love that that's that's how you frame the importance of leadership. And I want to get into the skills in a minute because I'm I'm um, they're more closely aligned to my view of it than any other any other person I've spoken to. Um, but given how the nature of the world and work and leading is changing. I would love to hear you say a little bit about what you've seen change in your own experience of leadership and and perhaps maybe what leadership means to you now that's different than earlier on in your life. Well, one of the main differences is that is my development of social and emotional skills. And that has changed leadership from when I was younger, I would view it certainly as something that you were either born with or not. Mm-hmm. And also something that I associated leadership much more with authority. And now I see them as two orthogonal things. You can have authority and not be able to lead. You can lead without authority. You can lead with authority. You can not lead and not have authority. Mm-hmm. And leadership to me now is much more, you know, one of the ways I look at it is that a, a carpenter will work with saws and hammers and drills on wood and a mechanic might work with their tools on a car and a leader works with emotions and the emotional system on people's behavior, people and their behavior. 
And, and I've, I haven't heard anyone quite articulate it that way before. And but I think often it's um, you know this whole idea of you know you need to influence people and and in many ways that is about uh, engaging people on an emotional level. But it's often not in a sometimes it's not very a very respectful or empowering way. So what contrast do you see that's important there? A big contrast is that I think of like between management and leadership. I think a manager will work with external incentives. You know, if you do this project well, you get a bonus. If you do it poorly, you don't. You might get demoted. So it's kind of like manipulation and sticks and carrots. Yeah. I mean, people need to pay rent and people, I mean, yeah, if you mean a manipulation, I don't, as long as you don't carry a negative term, because, you know, it's, it has to be done. And, you know, you, if the shareholders are, if you're responsible to shareholders, then it's important. And, also, you know, when you're the worker, you need to know what's the measure of quality and so forth. And so that tells you these things. Mm-hmm. What managers generally don't do is get you to feel a sense of ownership and, and like really inspired to a project. And that's the domain mm-hmm. of leadership. Nice. And yeah. that's working with your internal motivation. A leader can get someone to want to do a project for themselves. Even like if I'm leading you, one of at least the, my style of leadership is I'm going to learn your emotions and motivations that are relevant to the project and try to connect them to the task so that you're doing it for yourself. It may look like you're doing it for the team and hopefully you have some of that, but really, you know, anyone who's listening to us right now, they care about what they do. Otherwise, you know, they're probably listening to this in in some ways to improve themselves. Mm -hmm. And that means that the people they work with also care about what they do. And if they care about what they do, they care. It means that something's motivating them. That motivation that's already there that's going to be the, the leader's most powerful tool. The best way to motivate someone is the way that they want to be motivated. Yeah, excellent. So I'm really keen to dive into that stuff, but I'd like to step back and talk a little bit about your journey from astrophysics to leadership. Yeah. Can you, can you say a little bit about what led you out of astrophysics and into the leadership realm and how a science guy ended up teaching in the business school? Yeah, I can tell you that it's, uh, I didn't expect it. When I went into graduate school and started the PhD program, I loved physics. I still love physics as much as I ever have. The life of a researcher is not the life that I wanted to live. It was, I can, I can go into a lot more depth, but in short, it was a lot more debugging and a lot less of physics. Mm-hmm. You know, if you look at experiments that were done generations ago, people actually did them with their own hands. And today it's all it's you know teams of tens of thousands across dozens, maybe hundreds of countries, on projects that take decades to finish. And you know, I tip my hat to the people who want to work that way. But it wasn't it wasn't the life I wanted to live. It wasn't. I didn't see myself as becoming the next Einstein or Richard Feynman or something like that. Meanwhile, I, so I was, I was, and I felt trapped, and I felt like I didn't know what to do. So meanwhile, some friends of mine from college that I was still in touch with approached me and said that they were getting together for beer, well, to come up with a, an entrepreneurial idea to, to start a company with. And they weren't coming up with anything. And they said, no, we're, we're, Josh is a great guy. Let's, let's bring Josh into this. So we, all three of us would meet for beers. And I had an idea that we decided to go with. The idea was uh, for a technology that ultimately became a set of, it's boxes that we would put on the subway tunnel wall between stations. And when the train went by, Riders in the train who looked out the window would see what looked like a movie screen. And there was a long set of still images with some optics in front. And that was my, you know, my idea that we patented. Yeah, it was really cool. 
And uh, there have been some of these displays in Australia. So oh, we yeah. have some licensees there. Okay. And uh, so anyone who so is interested in that. this is a business that's still running technically. Yeah. It's, uh, oh, wow. And are you still part of it or? Yeah. We have, yeah, I mean, no. we've expanded a lot. And then during recessions, we've retreated a lot. Uh, okay. And people who, well, people don't know this, but before we started recording, I was talking about that year in Shanghai. And that year was to develop the new generation of displays that went up in Nanjing. And okay. yeah. And so, yeah, it's, it's, and we have competition. So there's, it, like, if you've seen the one in the Zurich airport, that's an art display. I have not seen it with my own eyes, but I, my understanding is that it's a, an art display, not a commercial display. And there's different ones in different places. So and, can I ask what the company name is called? Yeah, we're called Submedia, like Subway Media. Oh, yeah. And if okay. you click around my webpage, if you go to joshuaspodek.com slash press, somewhere on there you can see videos of, of the displays because we've had various big launches. And back in the day, we would be front page news when we'd open up in a new city. Wow, cool. Well, I'll definitely so, have to have a look at that and put the links in the show notes, especially because oh, yeah. it, it, it is something that sounds familiar. And I think I may have even seen it in a subway here. You know, we advanced and retreated and advanced, almost went public and retreated. And but in post 9-11, the company was close to being bankrupt. And it was my first time being a CEO and the investors squeezed me out. And it was a difficult, very difficult time. I merged from so it. When you, when you say that investors squeezed you out, can you say a little bit more about what that means? In short, we didn't have any, I mean, we were running out of money and we couldn't pay our bills. Mm -hmm. And the investor said, we will, in short, we will put in enough money to keep the money, to keep the company alive, but we're going to put in a new CEO. And right. so that was one of the big lessons I had in be, having authority didn't mean I had power. I was the CEO, but that, uh, okay. you know, I, if I didn't sign a contract, the company would go bankrupt. And so I had to lose my position, a lot of equity, a lot of pride. And, mm. but that's business, that's life. And, uh, you know, and then, you know, I still have to, got to pay for my apartment. I still got to eat. So as much as I would have liked to have nursed my wounds for a long time, I had to go back to work. So I worked mm -hmm. at a friend's company for a little while. And that's when I realized that I wanted to keep starting my own companies I also knew that I that I needed more experience and I applied to and got into business school. Actually, when I was finishing graduate school, when I was finishing my PhD, I was taking classes without registering for them secretly at the business school. So I had taken five classes there and you can get you can get into business school really easily if you've taken classes there and you get recommendations from professors at that school. Mm -hmm. So that worked out, you know, in the midst of, of all these difficulties, that worked out pretty well. And then business school ended up being a tremendous, a, a tremendously satisfying experience. And that's where I found out that there were classes in leadership, which I'd never known before. And I took the classes and found they opened a whole, a door to a whole side of life that I was not aware of. It was, mm. you know, in physics, you don't really care about emotions and, I had long, I thought, okay, there's a, my rational side and my emotional side. Rational, that's reason. It makes sense. Emotions don't make sense. And that was enough for me to not really care about it. <laughs> okay. And relationships weren't really important to me. Right. And, that, and so school changed that. And so that was about 10 years ago that I got the MBA. 
And the first five years after that, I was diving in and learning everything I could about leadership and entrepreneurship. And, and, uh, and then about five years ago is when I started getting exposure to alternative ways of teaching, mainly through a friend of mine who started a school. Uh, he was the founding principal of a school that from the ground up was based in, uh, in his words, inquiry-driven inquiry project-based learning. And okay. so I went to that community and learned a lot from them. I mean, physically went to that school and, and talked to practitioners and learned how they did things and had them critique my syllabus and stuff like that. And then I also looked a lot about how fields that I categorize as active, social, emotional, expressive, performance-based, which would include acting, playing musical instruments, playing sports. And in all these fields, no one teaches you to act by lecturing theory. No one tells you to read psychology papers to learn how to act. It's mm. always, you start with the basics. And when you master a certain level of the basics, you move up to more intermediate stuff and you practice and practice. And everyone knows you, you have to practice and that's how you get better. And if you practice enough, you develop authenticity, genuineness, and you know expressiveness, and you perform better. And I looked at acting and I thought, I mean, I looked at uh, leadership and leadership, I think is a lot closer to acting than it is to a traditional academic field where you would write papers and read papers and, you know, and here, here's a way of looking at it. There's, I presume you've watched a bunch of TED Talks. I, I mean, a lot of people yeah. have. Yeah, most, I think it's safe to say most of our listeners have as well. If not, okay. put a, a link in the show notes to TED. There are a lot of TED Talks on leadership and how to improve your leadership. There are no TED Talks on how to play piano. There are no mm, TED Talks on how to act or how to sing or how to dance or how to play tennis or how to mm. do any of these other active, emotional, expressive, performance-based fields. Why not? Because we teach them very well. We're really good at teaching people how to play piano. I mean, I've, been, I've seen performances on Carnegie Hall, at Carnegie Hall and Lincoln Center, and it's tremendous. I've seen, when I look at LeBron James playing basketball, I'm like, that's amazing. It's, it's art. I also saw, say, in my country, the most, our most recent presidential election, not so great. Like, I don't, <laughs> think, I don't think our presidential candidates lead as well as our athletes and musicians do their thing. And so I think we teach that much better. I think there's so many TED Talks because we don't know how to do it, and everyone's trying. Hmm. And I think we teach these other fields are, are similar enough that we can use their techniques, which have been refined and honed over hundreds, even thousands of years, and apply them to how we teach leadership. I mean, it makes sense why we teach leadership the old way as a traditional academic subject with reading psychology papers and case studies and lecture and writing analytical papers. That makes a lot of sense given that academic places started teaching it, but that doesn't mean it's the most effective way to teach. Yeah, and I remember hearing you talk, or maybe I read it, um, about you having a desire to learn about how people learn about leadership and that the, you know, drawing on the idea of practice and that you play like you practice and you practice half-assed, then chances are you play half-assed as well. Yeah, that was something I learned in sports. And, you know, you'd be playing a game in practice and sometimes someone would, would not really try and they'd drop a pass and they'd say, yeah, well, I would have caught that in a game. And we're like, you play like you practice. If you practice like this, you're going to play like that. And so that's one of the things I learned. You know, I had a big 
experience uh, playing, I, my sport is ultimate frisbee, or was. I mean, now I'm a little old for it. And I, one time I was playing, it was my sophomore year, and there was a big game, and we were playing, and it was like halftime came, and I hadn't played a point yet. And the game was nearing the end, and I went up to the captain and said, I haven't played yet. And he said, Josh, I, I'm not sure how to say this. So the thing is that this is a very important game and it's a very close game and we want to do everything we can to win. And here's where he said, and I don't know how to say this, except when you're covering someone, he still gets the disc and we can't have that. And I couldn't really argue with that because he was probably right. And it was, I, um, this, I, I was, I stayed on the sideline and walked away from him and against my wishes, tears started welling up inside me and I started crying. And when you're an 18 year old guy with a bunch of other guys, you don't want to be around crying. So I, I went away from the field and went back to the van, uh, the vans, cause you have to take vans to get to the fields. And I started crying more. And then there's a women's team too. So their game ended. So now the, they come back to the vans and now, now I'm surrounded by a bunch of women. I'm like, Oh, this is even worse. <laughs> like, I don't want to be crying in this context, but in any case, um, it was a major point in my life where I said, do I want to be someone who, if I, if you go to practice, you get playing time in games, but not the big games. And did I want to be a player who, you know, showed up to practice and got to play when, and have fun? Or did I want to compete to be someone that the team depended on even in really big games? And I chose to get my emotional reward, not just from, you know, fun and entitlement, but from earning the right to be one of the top players on the team. And that's stuck with me. That was a, a major change in my life. Because, you know, comp competition, the concept of competition, there's more than one, there's, there's playing to win. That's one way to beat the other person. That's like the zero sum part of it. And another meaning of competition, as I understand it, is to be a competitor means to reach your potential and to, to do what you can to become the best that you can. And that was when I learned that second part of competition to reach my potential. Well, I really like that definition much better because I describe myself as being the least competitive person you'll ever meet. But in those terms, I'm perhaps I am far more competitive than I estimated. Because in Australia, sport is they call like in North America we call it sports. Here they take off the S, just call it, they just call it sport. People are sport mad and it's a huge part of the cultural identity. It's a huge part of how people spend their time, um, in, especially in rural communities. Um, and, and that just is not how I operate. I don't, I don't, I'm not interested in, um, that whole sort of, uh, trying to beat each other, even, even on, you know, fun little video games and stuff. But in terms of reaching potential, I mean, that's, that is, uh, far more appealing and and I've, I've often heard about um i think it was michael jordan who would repeatedly watch his own games and see you know where he could have passed to someone else and so that you know being able to be an amazing athlete for him was about being able to work well as a team rather than being the the star individual yeah for him as well as for many it takes time to get there because at the beginning you want to show off how great you are yeah and there's you know there's another big model for me in life, you know, you have different models for different different beliefs for different things. And I used to think of life and lots of things as more strategic, more chess-like. 
you know, there's rules to follow that are strict rules. And at every point in the game, you know exactly who's where. And I look at life a lot more like surfing or skiing now, which is, it's sport in the sense that you were describing before, but you don't ski. I mean, there there are skiing competitions and there are surfing mm-hmm. competitions, but really you it's you and the wave or you and the mountain and you're just, mm. it's you want to improve. You, that in the second sense of competition, I want to become the best skier that I can, which doesn't necessarily mean the fastest or biggest jumps or whatever. I can't jump on a ski, but I want to ski. It's more, the better I ski, the more fun I have. And I guess I'm, I'm thinking of it from skiing because growing up in Canada, skiing was part of what we did. And I remember safely landing from my first jump and the thrill of the experience but also the achievement oh my god I did it (laughs) you know like that's that's not something I experience very often um but it it got to a point where I was like oh yeah I can I you know I got that confidence and I started to be able to actually do it um but yeah I really like that analogy especially with the the surfing eyes and um, I'm also aware that it's used as a metaphor in terms of emotional intelligence as well and being able to ride that wave and accept you know that you don't necessarily have control but the more that you can just be with what's going on um it's easier to manage yeah that was one of the big shifts for me is looking at things that way less structured and i mean there's structure and there's rules but it's it's different it's more like the rules are between you and nature as opposed Mm. to something written down somewhere so I'm going to move us into where what's going on for you at the moment, because I know that you and I could talk about that stuff until the cows come home. Mm-hmm. But you have recently released your book, and it's been up for, what, two months now? Yeah, I mean, it's 20 years in the making in the sense that that's when I first started my first leadership role, starting my first company. And then 10 years in the making, if you look at the when I've really focused on leadership, and the book is called Leadership Step by Step. And... But what really compelled me to write it, in in because the bookshelves are filled with books on leadership, but all those mm-hmm. books are books about leadership. They're principles. It's to me, it's like books. If, if if we had books like that on piano, it would be, you know, books about the history of Bach and Beethoven and principles, but not actually playing scales. And so mm. my book is a book it's of a exercises. Each chapter. Each chapter is based on an exercise, and each exercise gives you a set of skills. And there's a story before each one to talk about, to illustrate how this, how the skills, the relevant skills, relate to the practice of leadership or, or your life. And, and and these this this has come from the classroom, hasn't it? This is what you were teaching, and you've now got it in a, a, a book form to make it more accessible. Yeah, the classroom, and also a lot of one-on-one coaching. And a mm-hmm. lot of workshops. So I've worked mm-hmm. with a lot of companies and doing things like that. So some of it's a classroom. And I can tell you, the the deans and the administration, they're kind of confused because they know the reviews are really good. The students really love the stuff. But they look at my syllabus and it doesn't fit their, ex- their expectation of a syllabus. It doesn't have mm-hmm. as because nearly as much Because it's less theoretical and more practical? Or? Yeah. And practical, not just in the sense of like, this is useful, but it's based on practice. And the mm. most... Most of the learning happens outside the classroom when, you know, each, when I teach in the class, it's, I give them an exercise to do outside the classroom. Because remember, you know, traditional academic means generally, it means a lot of intellectual challenge. And intellect is, you know, I have nothing against intellect. Physics is very intellectual. Mm -hmm. But the practice of leadership is much more social and emotional 
there, most leaders didn't get to, most great leaders didn't come, become great because of their intellectual skills, although it didn't hurt, but it was their social and emotional skills. And there's no amount of reading or watching videos or analysis or discussing case studies that will get you integrity or resilience or listening skills that comes from facing and overcoming social and emotional challenges. And those can be really hard. And so one of the main principles in the book is the same principles in how we teach to lead or to, uh, to, to, to sing or to dance or to act or to just play sports, which is start with the basics, start with what, what anyone can do, then build on that and build on that and build on that and try to structure the exercises so that each one leads to the next, each one follows from the one before, and there are no big jumps. Big jumps cause anxiety and that's where people give up. So I, I try mm. to make each one a little bit more than the one before, a little bit more than that, a little bit more so that by the time you're on exercise 15, 16, 17, this is really advanced stuff that if you started there, it would probably blow a lot of people out of the water. But because you just did 14, 13, 12, they're not that big of a jump for you. Now, people who get the book and just read it, I'm happy that people read it and they love the stories and they know that if they did the exercises, they'd get a lot from it. But you have to do the exercises to get the full value. If you look at Amazon and you read the reviews or you go to my webpage and you look at the reviews of people who've taken it and done the exercises, they're, to my view, off the charts. They're like people consistently say, I didn't know that you could learn this stuff at all. I thought, mm -hmm. I didn't know that, I, it's certainly not in an academic environment or from a book. And that comes from people who do the exercises. There's also the online version of the courses, which is, it's kind of a step up from the book because it has an online community component that the book just can't give you. And that after each exercise, you write your reflections on the online version, and then you get to read oh, everybody yeah. else's reflections. And oh, so you yeah. learn from them and they learn from you and there's a communal aspect to it. And that adds to it. Yeah. Wow. And I really like how you've got it structured as far as understanding yourself. So, you know, in the way I think of it is self-awareness is the foundation and then leading yourself is your, your next um, unit and then understanding others and then leading others. So can you tell us a little bit more about that structure and about some of the, the associated skills? Yeah, to me, there's not one set of leadership skills. I mean, it's, it's a lot of different things. And to me, there's a lot about yourself and there's a lot about others. And there's a lot about understanding, a lot about leading. And so it seemed to me that was a breakdown that worked pretty well. Most people like the fourth unit the most about leading others because that's what they think of as leadership. But this mm. foundation of leading yourself, you know, if you can't lead yourself, if you can't create habits for yourself, if you can't be aware of what's going on inside your own mind and your own heart, it's difficult to get others to pick up habits or to know what's in their hearts and their minds. Well, so the first unit on understanding yourself is it's about self-awareness and being aware of how your thoughts work, how your perception works, how your beliefs influence your perception and how to be more aware of your beliefs. Understanding and leading yourself, which is the second unit, is about creating habits, about uh, getting advice so that you can improve yourself in ways that people, that build relationships as opposed to invoking judgment. Uh, mm -hmm. And then the third unit on understanding others, the first two units, people tend to learn a lot about, they feel like they're learning about the, a lot about themselves and they are, but a lot of what they're learning is actually about the human emotional system in general. Mm, yeah. And so this part, points out what you learned that was about the human emotional system as a and, and generalizes what you learned to everyone. And then and how to apply that to interacting. Yeah. And it's, 
And so you realize people have an emotional system. And unlike what I used to think that the emotional system was irrational because, you know, not therefore not reasonable, it's actually, it's very systematic. It is consistent, reliable, and predictable. It's just that most of us have different backgrounds and different beliefs so that you and I might see the same thing, but we respond to it differently because we have different backgrounds. Yeah, nice. I, um, a previous guest, um, David Holzman, was talking. We were talking about um, worldview, and then sort of a conversation that came out of um, the the podcast was the idea of worldview intelligence and being able to recognize the impact that how people have different beliefs and and sort of where that sits in how to be in community, to be in teams, to be in you know change-making environments and and the the importance of understanding that we don't all react the same way we don't all believe the same thing and to me that's there's that's um there's just so much potential there especially in terms of you know what's happening on the political stage at the moment yeah to me this is the domain of leadership and not just business leadership but any leader i mean in sports a coach you got to know if it if if one player thinks it's a defensive game and another thinks it's an offensive game, they're going to have a tough time <laughs> yeah. playing together. You've got to expose that difference and know how it's affecting, how people's beliefs are affecting how they're playing and how the team gets together. And it, But a manager doesn't need to know that. A manager can just say, look, I don't care where you're coming from. Well, they're not going to be so crass, but you know, a manager can just say, look, we need to get this report done by Friday. If you get it done, you'll get an extra day of vacation. If you don't get it done, you know, I'm going to have to look for someone else to fill your spot. And <laughs> no pressure. Your motivation is because here's your incentives, mm. or likewise. But in 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 uh, in a relationship between you and your brother, or sister, or your friends, or whatever, if you don't pick up these differences, you can be living in different worlds. I mean, physically in the same world, but you're perceiving it so differently that it feels like different worlds. And if if you have access to that as a leader, that gives you it's a major tool for leadership. That's why symbols are so important for leadership because they, and, and music and, and, and these nonverbal things are important because they, they can get people aligned in a way that words can't. So the subtitle of your book is Becoming the Leader Others Follow and looking at the last section and, um, you know, leading others. So can you, can you, and, and I, I hear you saying also that there's this, that seems to be where people kind of glom onto or perhaps enjoy it the most. Um, but there's also been a lot of, you know, criticism of how leading and following happens. So how is what you're suggesting different than the sort of traditional approach to leadership? Well, referring to what I said before about people already have motivations. I mean, if someone's flipping burgers and they, they have to because otherwise they're going to lose their apartment, they might not really care about what they do. But most of us who are, who, if you care about leadership, you're probably working in a place where everyone around you cares about something motivated them to get there. They worked hard. They worked weekends. You know, they had to push up against their parents wanted them to do one thing and they wanted to do another, something like that. And mm-hmm. that, that motivation, that's going to be very strong, very effective. And most people won't share it because it makes them vulnerable. If you know what I care about, you can hurt me, you can use me, you can yeah. manipulate me against my wishes. <clears throat> and over the years, most of us have learned to hide that. And so that's why people have trouble finding meaning and purpose a lot, because they hide what's meaningful and purposeful mm. to them. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty tough for a leader to make you feel inspired if, if that person doesn't know what motivates you. 
Yeah, well, there certainly needs to be a high level of trust to be able to feel comfortable to to be vulnerable, to show that, that motivation, so, and, and also to know that it's not just going to be used as a means to an end, that it's an actual, well, that, that there's care associated with it. So that trust, that making the person feel comfortable, allowing themselves to be vulnerable, I'll tell you one way you can't create it is simply saying, trust me, because that's what an untrustworthy person would say to it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So the one of the major cores of Unit Four, and what the whole book and the whole course is building up to, is to behave and communicate in ways that make the other person realize that you are going to support them, and to mm. make them feel comfortable sharing their vulnerabilities. And so it's where action speaks louder than words. Exactly. In in fact, mm. words are generally ineffective or even counterproductive. I mean, there's an old phrase, I don't know if you, I hope cursing is okay, but there's an old joke, uh, how do you say fuck you in business? Mm. Trust me. Oh, nice. Wow, that's great. Yeah, and I, I see a lot of communication coming from business saying, you know, this is the best and this is going to create this result, but people just don't trust it. Because, you know, it's it's like, well, you're just trying to get me to buy it or, or whatever. But so, and I, I expect that that's, there's a, a savviness now that people, you know, hear that and they just kind of go, yeah, whatever. And, and so, yeah, it's more about, like you say, it's the behaviors, it's the practices, it's that sort of systematic awareness and um, that, that generates trustworthiness or just generates trust, perhaps. And so I borrow from these other fields to give you exercises. Like there are several exercises that have scripts in them and scripts to follow, that if you follow them, you will behave in ways that others will respond to. And you know, after you practice it enough, you can go off script and do it yourself. But like a scale, you know, first play it as assigned mm. until you know it backward and forward. And, and then, and each time you do it, you pick up what's going on and you develop the skills by practicing. You get the form accurate. And then, you know, with enough practice, you'll start doing it yourself in your own way. But what happens is that you behave in ways and you start seeing people respond to your authenticity and your genuineness. It may sound funny to, to use my words makes you sound genuine, but as... <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm, I tend not to be a, a, f- a fan of scripts, but I, I can see where you're coming from, like, especially with the, um, on your website, you have the meaningful um, connection exercise. And I was looking at it going, oh, I might not say it that way, but... Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I can also see the value of doing the the activity as designed to begin with to allow for yeah getting practiced at it such that you feel comfortable to to do it in a way that is sort of more more your own, which actually leads me to um, just getting into that sort of you know practice realm. I'd I'd like to shift over to to the concept of sidcha for a moment, if that's mm, all right. Yeah, one of my favorite topics. Right. So tell me, what is Sitcha and why is it important in um, life and leadership? So the term Sitcha, S-I-D-C-H-A, is a term I made up and it stands for S-I, self-imposed, daily, challenging, healthy activity. And virtually all, I don't know, you know, every, everyone that I look up to historical or today, they tend to have daily habits. And Sitcha is a step up from that. It's you know, I mean, it's if you have a ha- if you don't have any habits that fall that are sidchas, self-imposed, daily, challenging, healthy, and active. Mm. You know, if you lived in another time when your job gave you a nine-to-five schedule and you had this structure imposed on you from outside, 
you know, maybe you didn't need something like that. But in my world, and most of the people that I know, we don't have structure like that. If you don't impose that structure yourself, you're not going to have it. And to me, not having structure, it's like building in sand. You can't, it's not a solid foundation. Yeah, I find it as like a, there are times in my past where I've been sort of anti-structure, but I think I'm, I've moved into a place where I can see the value of having something that like, I mean, for me, you know, I do sun salutations and a few warrior poses um, as yoga practice each morning. And that's that I, f- I find really useful. And that, that structure has, um, it's been a long time in the making. Like it took me years to actually get to the point. I knew it was a good idea. I set these, you know, New Year's resolutions and stuff. And it, and finally, I started doing it. And now I don't even think about it. And it sort of freed me up. It's sort of that, that bizarre relationship between discipline and freedom in that once you can be disciplined enough, it generates a freedom. Exactly. There's a difference between freedom and chaos. Mm. And, you know, just randomly scribbling on a piece of paper is not abstract expressionist art. It's just <laughs> random. But it can lead to creative thinking. Like, I think there's a place for chaos, but I think there's, yeah, I I think there's a balance to be struck. But anyways, continue. Well, I won't stop people from doing things how they want. To me, if I listen to Charlie Parker playing some crazy jazz riff, that comes from lots and lots and lots of practice. Mm, Yeah, fair enough. You know, I'm going to, here, I'm going to, I have my computer here. So I'm going to bring up the, probably my top quote. Oh, yes. Yes, I read this um, in one of your... Uh, okay. I think it was a blog post, but yeah, I, I'm a big fan of, of hers as well. So yeah, go ahead. It's the dancer is... And by the way, I, I say that I'm going to quote her, but what she says about dancer, you could easily put in leader or musician Athlete, of any yeah. kind or you know any, any of these fields. The mm-hmm. dancer is realistic. His craft teaches him to be. Either the foot is pointed or it is not. No amount of dreaming will point it for you. This requires discipline, not drill, not something imposed from without, but discipline imposed by you yourself upon yourself. Your goal is freedom, but freedom may only be achieved through discipline. In the studio, you learn to conform, to submit yourself to the demands of your craft so that you may finally be free. And she revolutionized Mm -hmm. dance in the 20th century in the way that Picasso revolutionized visual arts. And I think her expression of the relationship that you just described between freedom and conforming and submission, I never, until she said it, it was always there, but I didn't quite get it. And she said it in a way that's, I've not, I haven't tried. I don't think I could say it better. Mm, Yeah, I really, really, uh, yeah, I just love that, that um, association with, you know, movement, practice and that it, yeah, it, it leads to freedom, but there's a discipline behind it. Yeah. And mm. there may be other ways of doing it. This is the way that I go with. And I think, you know, people, the person who plays Carnegie Hall played more scales than anyone. Mm. And the people who make the finals of whatever competition, they practiced more than anyone. So let's hear a little bit about your own sidchas and what you've done, because some of them seem a, a little bit crazy, but <laughs> I'm curious about how, you know, what, what the results have been for you. So, so what was it? Nine, was it 900? No, 90,000 burpees. Was that right? Yeah. So the big one 
that gets me I the most to, I'm just going to go on the record and say I hate burpees, but I really admire that you did this. <laughs> and so, yeah, t- tell us about what, why that and um, how it went. So it, well, I'm going to go back to the first one. I mean, there's, there's a bit of context that is relevant, which is that when I was okay. first starting my blog, a friend of mine, I, one friend set up one of my blogs, uh, my first blog, and I kind of wrote a little bit. And the other guy was like, you know, you're using this other thing. You should switch to WordPress and I'll set it up for you. So he sets it up for me. And I say to him, all right, how often do you post? Is it like Monday, Wednesday, Friday? Is it three days a week or what? And, and he looks at me and he goes, every day. And then he says, if you miss one day, you can miss two. If you miss two, it's all over. Mm-hmm. And that stuck with okay. me because yeah. there's definitely things that I've like let slide. And the next thing I know, I've, I haven't done it in a long time. Yep. So that was January 2011. And I've not missed a post since then. So I'm, wow. I'm a little over 2,500 posts now. I don't know anyone who's Crazy. anywhere close <laughs> to that. And, huh. you know, at first I thought I'd post for... I don't know, a little while figuring I had a few ideas to write. And I found out that the more that I wrote, the more I developed the skills of writing and coming up with ideas and so forth. I'm not, I'm not Hemingway, but it's, it's part of my day. I haven't like right now where I am, it's close to 9 PM and I haven't written my post today, but I have a file that has a bunch of ideas so that if I'm ever stuck for an idea, I can go to that file. And actually the, that file grows faster than I can more than one idea per day goes into the file. So I have to erase some periodically because I don't want the file to get too big. Mm. And, you know, when, when I met my first editor at Inc, I said, you know, I was like, I, I'd like to write for you guys. And they said, well, can we trust you to write a lot? And I was like, well, here's my archives, <laughs> roughly 2000 posts. And they were like, okay, we get it. And so, <laughs> you know, it was, it was really quick. And when I was writing the book, I had to switch into writing in for, you know, a, a 200, 200 odd page document as opposed to a 500 word essay. Hmm. But, and actually I should say, I, I learned a lot in writing the book. I'm, it was a great experience. Anyway, so back to January, 2011, I started writing just from zero to every day, all of a sudden. I mean, there were a few posts before he said that. And then I found an article in the New York Times that, that I mentioned to a friend and so the the writer had asked fitness experts to name their ideas for the best exercises. And one of them mentioned the burpee and I'd never heard of a burpee before. So I looked at oh, it. Really? Yeah. And so, you know, so people who don't know it's you drop down to a push up and then jump up and it's, it's, it's a, pretty physically demanding when you're doing it repetitively. Yeah. One, no big deal. 10, you're going to be breathing heavy. 20, mm-hmm. you can't talk afterward because yeah. it's, so, it's so much. Wow. And so I mentioned to a friend and one thing led to another. We decided to do burpees for a while, daily burpees for a while. And while I'm doing them, the, we were going to do 10 a day for a month. And, and we were calling or texting each other every day to verify that we were doing it and kind of supporting each other. Mm. So it began for me as a friendly thing. And I still, to this day, almost every burpee set that I do, I think of him. And, oh, nice. And while I'm doing them, I realized, you know, I'm pretty lazy. I'm not that disciplined. And I, I recognize the value. I'd like to go to the gym, but, and even here in New York, the gym is, is, it's like 500 meters away from my apartment. It's not that far, but when it rains, I might not go. And it costs money and I don't like to spend money on stuff. And, and then I'm doing these burpees and I'm thinking, this is really good exercise. This is really good. This mm-hmm. is like, and this fitness expert said it was the single best exercise or, you know, a candidate for it. And something went in my head and said, I'm going to do this every day forever until my body gives out. 
and if maybe, you know, 80 years from now, I don't know. Well, not 80 years from then, but when I'm 80. Mm. And, and combined with, if you miss one day, you can miss two. If you miss two, it's all over. I simply have not missed a day of burpees since. I've done so burpees. you're still doing them? Oh, yeah. I did them this morning. I'll do them when you hang up. I, I'm, and wow. actually, one of the things I want to do now is to shift have, have burpees. We, have you reached 100,000 yet? I'm around, not, I passed 90,000 maybe a month or two ago. So okay. it'll probably be later this year, I'll hit, my, I'll hit six digits. Wow. That is and, remarkable. Because 10, 10 a day is doable. And I, yeah, wow, I'm, I'm just a bit boggled because I'm thinking as much as I hate burpees, I could probably do that. And yeah, I mean, if, I, if that's all I did, I'd probably be okay. I mean, you know, I walk my dogs twice a day and I do my yoga and that's probably okay. But it's, um, I've probably been eating more chocolate in the last few months than I probably need to. And realizing that if I want my pants to fit properly again, I'm going to need to do something different. So now I'm actually finding myself tempted to, to, um, follow suit, but, um, anyways, continue. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, well, I mean the pants not fitting is going to be a diet issue more than a fitness, more than an exercise oh, yeah. issue. Yeah. I, I find though, if I'm, if I'm, if I'm adding diet to my practice, then I'm more mindful of what I put in my mouth. If you had exercise to your practice, then you're more mindful. Yeah, like yes. If I'm, I'm more aware of of what, like, if if I were to to do the physical activity, um, and and if I were to do this, what I described before as crazy thing of of um, doing that that many burpees a day. When I think of ten, I think that's yeah, it's, it feels possible. So yes. Anyways, go on. Well, yeah. I mean, when I was doing ten a day, I thought it was a lot, and now ten is like trivial for me. Not trivial, mm -hmm. but. And, you know, remember the C in Sidcha is challenging. So once your skills develop enough, then you have to increase it. So yeah. over the years, I've gone from 10 to 11 to 12 to 13. And then at one point in those first 30 days, we doubled. So we did one set in the morning, one set in the evening. Okay. And then over the years, I would just keep adding a few more. So now I do, it actually now it's, my baseline is 27 in the morning and 27 in the evening, plus wow. a set of crunches and some stretching. So it's basically mm -hmm. a 10-minute routine that's intense. Mm -hmm. And uh, to actually two 10-minute routines a day, one in the morning, one in the evening. And increasingly, as difficult as burpees are, I'm increasingly trying to think of them like brushing my teeth, which I've also done every day as long as I can possibly remember. Mm. I think in college, there was a time when I woke up hungover that I must have fallen asleep without brushing my teeth. But the first <laughs> thing I did was brush my teeth. Yeah. So... And I don't look for an award for brushing my teeth. I, and, you know, I'm sure there are people who don't brush their teeth every day, but they're not in my community because I just, it's something that you hang out, when you brush your teeth every day, you hang out with other people who brush their teeth every day and you don't really, <laughs> something's different about people who don't brush their teeth every day. And the same goes for burpees or fitness. And so, okay. And then now fast forward, I've been doing writing and burpees every day for a while. Now go to like 2013 maybe. And I'm reading this guy's, this guy, Joel Runyon, great guy. Uh, we connected online and I read, he, I, I'm reading his post about cold showers and oh God, <laughs> people are really into cold showers. And so as I'm reading his post about it, and I recommend looking up Runyon, R-U-N-Y-O-N. And yeah, he's, now he's doing, these, he's doing these, he's doing these ultra marathons on all the continents. Like a few wow. months ago he did Antarctica and it was raising charity for uh, Pencils for Promise, I think. Okay. Or raising money for charity. And yeah, so 
I'm reading this post where all these people are responding and they're writing about cold showers and they're like, I lost weight from cold showers. My life is better. I'm like, uh, what? I don't see the connection between what you're talking about. And the more that I read, the more I'm realizing how they're, I, I'm like, at first I thought, oh, yeah, maybe I'll do this. And as I keep reading, I'm like, you know, I, I will do this. And then I keep reading. I'm like, I'm going to do this soon. And then at one point I just turned around, walked in my bathroom, turned on the cold water and took my first cold shower, minimum five minutes. Oh and God. It was December in the sounds US horrible. <laughs> Well, it was in it, winter. It was December in the United States, and in, in yeah. fact, I, that, I made that the first of thirty days. The, and then, the caveat, though, with that is that in North America, when winter gets cold, every home is heated, whereas in Australia, um, often it's only one room that's heated, and the you know insulation and it, the houses tend to be pretty drafty. So. Yeah, if we were to to flip it and say that you were going to do that in June or July in Australia, it, it would be a different experience. But over there, you've got central heating pretty much. Well, it makes a bit of a difference. My but yes. building has central heating. However, my window is drafty, and oh, yeah? I will not turn on the heat because when it's drafty, I'm not going to make other people have to deal with my. I'm not going to pollute the world because I'm lazy. But. So you, so in Australia, the, the the term that we have is rug up. So you you're more likely to put on a layer of clothing before you turn on the heat. Is that is that along the lines of what you're saying? Yeah, I I don't turn on the heat. You don't I turn, turn on, on the when heat. people are over. People turn. Wow. I, I don't turn on the heat. It's. I mean, I have a friend who visits sometimes, and I'll turn on the heat. But on my own, no, I wear three layers, and no way am I going to turn on the heat if eventually. Actually, I've I've fixed the the draftiness of the windows, but I still don't turn on the heat. Because now yeah, I don't I have think to that's because- more of a well, it sounds to me that that's more uh, a choice that you're making because you recognize the impact that using energy for heat has on the environment, yeah yeah, and i'm not gonna I'm not gonna make other people suffer for my laziness. Hmm. I'll be lazy, sure, but then I got to deal with it, so yeah, well. it's really cold, and so my record water temperature in Fahrenheit is thirty nine point nine degrees, which I guess is like three or four Celsius. Oh man, I can't even imagine. That just sounds like sounds like hell to me. Fingertips purple, yeah. Oh my god. So, so tell me, what are the benefits? It's incredibly invigorating, and I will tell you this: of all the things you can do to challenge yourself, whether it's lifting weights or meditating or yoga or talking to a new person every day or whatever, of all the things you could possibly do, a cold shower is the least intrusive of anything. In a material sense, it doesn't cost money. It doesn't take extra time. There's no risk of injury. In fact, it will save you time because you're probably going to take shorter cold showers and hot showers. And so if you want to improve your life, it is the least impactful but most beneficial. You're, you're very athletic though. Yeah. Like you, I mean, the burpees aside, you like doing marathons and you, you know, your, your chances are you've got, um, a system in your body that as far as the muscles go, they're probably generating heat more than someone who is less active. Yeah. Actually that brings me to last winter when it was really freaking cold and really drafty. And by the way, I switched from every day to every fourth day after that month, I was like, I want to keep doing this for the rest of my life. But if I do it every day, I'm not going to keep it up. And so mm-hmm. I said every second day, every third day, somehow every fourth day seemed seemed right for me. Okay. And what I realized last winter was it was the cold shower is enough, but getting going from the cold shower to cold air afterward, that's even harder. <laughs> and so I have a rowing machine and oh, okay. now I do 
I row every fourth day just before the cold shower. Oh, and, okay. And I take two things that are really difficult and combining them makes them both complementary. So I'm in, sweating in pretty rowing heavy after beforehand, the row. you, you raise your body temperature before you go into the cold shower? Yeah. Okay. And then I come out of the cold shower, I'm usually still a little bit sweating. Oh, really? I don't do five-minute cold shower. It's like a three-minute cold shower now. Okay. Here's a big principle I have in my life. If there's stuff that I that occupies my mind and that's not that important, I do what I, I try to find what do I want to do? Like what's the right answer for me and stick with mm, it. So yeah, I live nice. on the fifth floor of a building and I used to come in every time I'd be like, should I take the elevator or the stairs, elevator or stairs? And I finally said stairs for once and for all, I'm always going to take the stairs. And then I always take the stairs and I'd rather let it's mental freedom. Mm. So when I take the cold shower, my rule for myself is, Soap and shampoo as usual. And then I have to count down from 60 for, you know, instead of going for five minutes, just a 60 extra seconds of cold shower after I finish the cleaning part. So tell me about the, the benefits of Sitcha, whether it's burpees or cold showers or yoga, whatever it is. Why do this? What, what's it going to, what difference is it going to make? Okay. I'll tell you the trivial things is that Fitness, like my my resting heart rate is probably somewhere around 50 beats per minute. So that's pretty good for a 45-year-old. I got mm-hmm. um, I got definition on my abs, although I think that's more from the healthy diet. And mm-hmm. uh, I like my physique right now. That's the superficial stuff. That's pretty cool. I mean, I like it. It's definitely, it's, I really well, enjoy. Honestly, there's not a lot of people out there that, that can say that about themselves. And even if they did have, you know, a slim or fit physique there there's the beliefs that we have about ourselves but anyways continue it's i just find that interesting one of the main things that really counts is the discipline i a lot of people think i have discipline and therefore i can do this but it's not that's like when i was a kid growing up i used to see people going to the gym and they had big muscles and i thought well i don't have big muscles so i can't go to the gym wrong (laughs) you don't have it's not that big muscles cause you to go to the gym going to the gym is how it's one way to develop the muscles. Mm. So not having muscles is a reason to go to the gym if you want them, not a reason to avoid going to the gym. And likewise, doing disciplined things gives you discipline. That's how you develop it. It's a skill that you learn like any other. It's an emotional, social skill, a more social, a more, more emotional skill. And mm. so I'm training discipline. And discipline is in so you know, many areas of in life. Burpees that so I do useful. before every single set. I don't want to do it. I mean, there's a, you know, emotionally, I, there's something in me that's like, oh, don't do it, don't do it, because I'm lazy. <laughs> but when I hear I'm, you say that you're lazy, it, it just does not compute when I have, when I know what you do and what your practices are and that, yeah, it just doesn't, doesn't fit. But Well, let me put it yeah. this way. Mm. I have the same emotional system than anybody else does. I'm human, just like anybody I don't, there's nothing special. I'm, there's no burpee gene that makes you do, I didn't know what they were before I read that article. Yeah. I developed skill that anyone can develop. It's just like, if you see someone play piano, you don't think they magically know how to play piano. They practiced. Mm. And so I'm practicing discipline. It's, and it's really, there's no equipment necessary. There's no training. There's no, you don't need a spotter. You don't need a gym. You don't need to go anywhere. It doesn't matter what the weather is. I've done them in North Korea. I've done them in Australia. I've done them in South America. I've done them in North America. And I've done them when friends are over. I've done them, you know, most of them I've done all by myself. There's a big element of integrity. 
Mm. What, what is integrity if not what you do when no one is watching? And I'm practicing my integrity every day. So is it about the relationship with yourself? It's, yeah, this is, no, I, no one knows if I'm doing this or not. I mean, I could be lying about it, but I'm not doing it for you. Yeah. I'm doing it for me. Yeah, and, nice. and to some extent, it's like, could you go to sleep without brushing your teeth? What, what would your life be if you brush your teeth sometimes? What would that, what would you, how would you feel about yourself? Yeah, it's an interesting one because, uh, yeah, when I saw, you know, this whole Sidsha concept, I thought, wow, that's, there's something in that. I think there's some, some real value. And I think when I'm doing my coaching work with people, often I'm thinking of, you know, ways to support people to change their relationship with themselves or to improve their relationship with themselves. And I, and I think um, this is a, yeah, a good tool for that for, on all sorts of different fronts. Broadly, I think of it as, if you, without us, without some kind of habits in life, it's like building and a foundation of sand. Mm. A daily habit will give you a platform to build on. A sidcha, self-imposed daily challenging healthy activity, that will give. That's like bedrock. That you can build a skyscraper. You can build the world Empire State Building on bedrock. You can't build that on sand. Mm. And I want my life to be an Empire State Building, not mm. a little grass hut. And I get the impression that you're you're doing this partly to have a a healthy present, but I think you it, it, the impression I get is that you're also, you know, preparing for longevity and preparing for the future. So I'm going to switch gears and ask you what you think we need to pay most attention to in preparation for the future. Well, that's a very broad question. I mean, uh, can, can you narrow it down any? In well, I mean, we've been talking about health and. and um, in, well, fitness, which has health benefits. But I, I guess I'm also thinking of it from the perspective of, of leadership and the way the world is changing, whether it's automation, like before you were talking about 100 years ago, it was useful to have, you know, the skills to be able to, um, you know, just how, how things are changing from needing to, to um, do the heavy lifting to knowing things. And soon it will be computers that, could, that do both of those things better than us. What, what, what do you think it's going to take for us to thrive into the future? What can we do now that will lead us to something more positive than a lot of the fear-mongering around the future? I don't feel the fear-mongering. I, I mean, I see it. I see people afraid mm. of it. So you me, don't subscribe to it? Exactly. What's the point of an economy is to distribute goods and services through the community, through, you know, through among people. And if you think the only value you can offer to the world is to, you know, work in a factory or to do some job that other people tell you, like if you, if your way of getting work is sending a resume out so that people can fill a need that they have, that's no initiative on your part. It's not problem solving. It's your, it's like, almost like begging it's you're you're hoping that they will that they will give you something to do when you learn leadership and entrepreneurship in the way that I teach it you're learning initiative you're learning empathy you're learning responsibility you're learning problem solving skills you're learning to get other people to feel comfortable sharing what they need from you you communicate that way you behave that way people start sharing their problems with you their needs with you and when someone tells you here's a little thing I asked my class there's a special word, there's a, a, a word for when someone in, in a position of authority, someone who has resources, when they tell you their needs, when they tell you their problems, there's a word for that. Do you know what it is? Uh, not off the top of my head. It's a job offer. Oh. 
Yeah, right. And they might not know it's a job offer and you might not know it, but if you have the skills to get some, if you can behave in ways that other people share their problems with you and share their interests with you and share their motivations with you, and they have access to resources, you now how you now can improve their life by addressing their needs, solving their problems. Hmm. And I can tell you that it's possible that the future is so unpredictable that nothing in today's world applies to it. You know, the matrix might happen, something like that. In that mm. case, all bets are off. I don't know. But yeah. if it's anything like the past several thousand years, automation will make people more productive, but people still interact with other people and there's still going to be food growing on farms that has to get to people. And if you can solve other people's problems, and how do you solve them? By learning what they are, by behaving in ways that people share with you, by, behave, by being so genuine and authentic and supportive that and, and empathetic and listening, then they will share their issues with you and you'll work with them. Mm. And my, the, my clients, my students constantly get job offers from doing the homework, like yeah, not well. trying. There's huh. one guy in one of my classes, this is an undergrad, and he was working at some big multinational and he would do the exercises from the class, the, the same as the exercise in the book. And he would do them with his coworkers because he would work there a couple days a week. And the position he was at at the company was the highest one that you could have without a college degree. Mm-hmm. And without asking him, they created a new position at the company so that they could promote him hmm. without going up to the next thing that they couldn't give to him. Hmm, and interesting. people constantly, they constantly get offers. And I, I hear this one a lot. Josh, I met this person he ran this company that I in an area that I that I wanted to work in, and I led him to hire me. Oh, I like that. And Interesting. when you lead, you know, a lot of what a lot of my technique, a lot of my motivation, where I applied it, came from people who come to me. A lot of, when you're coach, a lot of people come to you because of their relationship with their CEO or their boss or their manager that mm-hmm. they don't like it, and they mm-hmm. come in and they think it really sucks. But they have authority. They don't say it this way, but they, like they have authority, so they are the boss, and I'm not. I have to do what I'm told, and I don't like it. And I developed a lot of what I teach and coach is how to lead someone independent of authority. Mm. And authority is a really counterproductive way of leading people because generally people try to undermine authority. Yeah. People don't like being told what to do. (laughs) Yeah. Whereas if I'm, if you're my boss and I find out what motivates you and I use that to motivate you, you generally feel good about that. Mm. And then that's, and so if you can lead someone based on they are human with emotions, with things that they care about, and you can help them act on what they care about in ways that are, are re- relevant to your task, they'll thank you and they'll hire you. And so that's why I'm not too, here's what I'm worried about. Not enough mm-hmm. people reading my book and doing the exercises. <laughs> stop feeling like the only value I can offer is to go around and ask people, do you have anything I can do for you? Do you have anything I can do for you? As opposed to behaving in a way that where they want to share what they want done so that you can do it or what, what they need done. And then you can say, well, I'll do it for you. Let's work out how we can do it. Well, and what I, what I hear you saying is that it's part of it is about being able to listen, but part of it else is also about being able to see opportunity. And like you say, take initiative. And I think, you know, that, that will continue, but I think there's also a lot of potential for, I guess I'm thinking of it as a, a looming psychological crisis in that how work is organized is going to is going to change and what we do now is 
it's very different to what it's going to look like in the future. We don't know what it's going to look like in the future, but we do know that many of the things that we're doing at the moment, machines can do better. And with so much of our identity being wrapped up in our work, my concern is that we, well, we're going to need to find new ways to, to um, experience meaning in our lives. And I, I remember you were talking about um, Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning, and I'm, I'm, um, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts around you know, this idea that we're going to really need to shift how we relate to um, a sense of meaning, a sense of identity, if, we're not, if, if what we're doing is um, not as wrapped up in our employment or our work or whatever it is that we're, we're doing that we're doing now that might not be happening in the future. I mean, if I, if I want to go to the real core, the value for me of Man's Search for Meaning is that Viktor Frankl was captured by the Nazis and was put in various death camps, including Auschwitz. Mm-hmm. And he writes about how, despite being in one of, if not the worst environment humans have created for each other, mm-hmm. if you read what he writes about, he writes about thinking about his wife and, and love and bliss and discovery about yeah. these things. And I don't think he was happy and I don't think he was feeling physical pleasure, but he had meaning. And yeah. he wrote about how on the border between life and death, because they weren't getting enough calories to live on, mm-hmm. to say nothing of the torture, Yeah, people who, he, he said you could tell when someone was going to die yeah. because they would eat the food right away. They'd smoke the cigarettes right away. I guess then people thought cigarettes are healthy, I guess. And they would (laughs) eat the food right away. And that meant that was a signal that they had given up on something to live for. And they were just living on physical pleasure. And that's Mm -hmm. not meaning. Mm -hmm. And whereas others on the verge of life and death would still give away a crumb of food to someone else to help them. And meaning is not out there. Meaning is in here. and And it's not some mystery, at least not to me. It was before. But to me, meaning and purpose are, that is a shorthand description of the emotions that you feel with something. And if you, this is what unit three is about. If you have the ability to understand how your emotional system works and you know how to craft your environments, beliefs, and behaviors, the things that you have uh, some voluntary control over, I don't believe that you can just spontaneously feel an emotion whenever you want. But you can change and influence your environment, your belief, behavior, so that you can bring out the emotions that you want. And I believe that's what he did. And so the big takeaway for me is that if he, if he, and he's a human like anybody else, he has no special abilities, you know, his experience didn't give him special abilities. They revealed what we all already have. And if he, under those conditions, could be, make his life about bliss and love and meaning, then I can too. Mm. And yeah. anyone can. It's a matter of skill. It's a matter of practice. If you, the more you practice, the better you get at it. That's part of what the sidchas are about—the burpees and the cold showers and things like that. Well, and I wonder. I mean, he didn't probably look at it as skill. He probably was looking at it from how people are oriented mentally. But I think what you're saying is that we can cultivate that skill. We can, you know, bring meaning to our lives. We can, you know, find the things that are important to us. We can do the practices that build our sense of personal integrity that shift our ability to relate to ourselves to trust ourselves and yeah i, I find a lot of uh, of hope in that i yeah me too and the way that you say it if we were talking about playing music we could say we could play with more feeling and we, and we can play with more expressiveness 
But when you get a teacher, because I my business is is helping people develop these skills. So when you get a teacher, it's not just saying play with feeling. You have to say giving specific exercises to develop specific skills, and you develop the ability to play with feeling. And so Mm. that's why my exercises are designed to give you those skills. And I the the reason I give the examples of Viktor Frankl and uh, from the Diving Bell and the Butterfly, and then uh, Mark Zupan from a book called Gimp. Which who was in a, a movie called uh, Murderball, which was like a, an Oscar-nominated documentary, and they lived these lives that they were able to, they they were able to do what a lot of people wish they could, and I to me they're very inspirational. But ultimately, it's practicing exercises that develop specific skills that when you have them, you can do what they did, and I, I believe Mark Zupan is is alive, so I could I hope one day to talk to him. But I believe that they shared these stories. Partly to show that you, partly to inspire people, meaning you can do it too. I think that Viktor Frankl wants us to be happy mm-hmm. in a way that, and, and, to have, and to find meaning and purpose and value in life in a way that he was able to discover how. And I think he, he doesn't want us to be captured by Nazis, but he wants us to learn what he did in that situation. Yeah. yeah. I feel like we could go on about this stuff for much longer, but I'm going to ask you the final question that I ask everybody. And so I'm thinking about it from people who may have a business idea, a book idea, or a creative project of some kind, and they're wanting to bring this into the world, but feeling a bit reluctant. Um, What advice would you have for them? So I've taught a lot of people, hundreds of people, entrepreneurship, and there's a lot of idea development. And I've taught, actually, I've taught classes in art and design, and we've put up big public works. And the number one predictor, I've not done a scientific study on this. So this is my opinion here. Mm-hmm. But I think, the, I think that I can tell you the quality of something better through this means than any other, the number of iterations it's gone through. And mm. the way to get many iterations is to get the first thing out the door it doesn't matter quality at the beginning, you just get going. And the next iteration will be better, the next one will be better, the next one will be better. And I don't know what good means, what better means, you do. And that comes through iterating and iterating and iterating. And listening, actually, so better than a great idea is an okay idea plus listening to the, listening to people plus flexibility plus iterations. So it's mm-hmm. you gotta get input from others, you gotta be flexible, but then iterate. So, so being able to put something yeah. out there, learn from what didn't work and what did work and change it based on, on that learning. Yeah. There's a, uh, yeah, there's a story. I haven't read the full book and if you look online, you can find it more accurate than I can tell, but there's a guy who taught a, a pottery class, if I remember right. And for some crazy reason, he decided to give half the class the grade based in one way and the other half another way. So the first half he said, I'm going to, I'm going to look at the best piece that you make in this class. And I'm going to give you your grade based on how good I think the best piece is. So make your best, make your pieces as good as possible. I'm going to measure, but I'm going to give you your grade by the, the best one. Mm-hmm. The other half, he said, I'm going to take all the pieces that you make. And at the end of the class, I'm going to put them on a scale and I'm going to give you a grade based on how much total weight of pottery you made. <laughs> so just, just make more. Wow. And at the end of the semester, Oh, the best quality came from the ones with the most quantity. Oh. Yeah, counterproductive, mm. uh, counterintuitive Correct. until yeah. you get it and you realize you make one, the next one you do, you can't help but learn a little bit from the one before. Mm-hmm. And then you learn mm-hmm. a little bit more and a little bit more. And, you, and that doing develops skill more than thinking. 
Beautiful. Mm. Well, Josh, thank you so much for spending time with us today. I know you've got some stuff to write um, before the day is out on your end of the world. Um, but is there anything anything else um, that you want to share with us? I'm going to definitely be putting you the, the link to your book um, in the show notes so that people can um, get access to that. But is there anything else that you want to say before we finish up? Yeah, you know, you mentioned that you have done and looked at and done the the uh, meaningful connection exercise. So I'll set up a link to make a, a a link for people to get to the meaningful connection exercise. Okay, uh, great. So why don't I do um, spodekacademy.com maybe slash Tathra? Sure. Yeah, that sounds okay. good. So I'll set that link up. And if, I guess you'll probably put it on the page so they can just link to it. But Yeah, yeah, I will for sure. Yeah, that's a great idea. People Thank can you. get an experience of doing the meaningful connection exercise. And, and, and I have this page with um, uh, an excerpt from the book and then videos of me doing it with my mentor, Marshall Goldsmith. Mm, and so yeah, people it. can get a feel for what it's like. Mm, great. That's very generous. Thank you very much. Thanks again for um, joining us from New York and sharing a little bit about your experience over there and the, the work that you've been doing to change the face of leadership and um, yeah, I just have a lot of admiration for the approach that you've taken because, like I said, it's it's very uh, much more aligned with, with um, my how I've been doing it um, than others. And I, I don't claim to have any sort of um, – it's it's not that there's any kind of comparison there. You've obviously been doing this much longer than I have, but I feel like I've, I've – instead of being intimidated by what you're doing, I'm actually really inspired by it, and I know that that um, there's, there's room for what I'm doing as well. So – Thanks for, for all of your work, and I hope that we get to talk again sometime soon. Well, it's been a pleasure on my side. Before we started recording, you said you, you, said you hadn't been doing this that long, but I, I felt very comfortable, and that it told me that you were experienced at this. So I, mm. I felt like I enjoyed your, your leadership in the interview, the mm. conversation, really. Thank you. That means a lot. Yeah. And I've been practicing and definitely learning from my mistakes early on. And now that this is, I think, my 25th interview, it's, um, yeah, I've, I've learned a lot about how to uh, just, you know, to um, to engage with people. And I've refined my questions and that sort of thing. So, so yeah, I feel like I'm, I'm applying a lot of what you've been talking about to, to the art of podcasting as well. Cool. I look forward to the next time, should it happen. And if people want to, yeah, if people go to spodekacademy.com or to joshuaspodek.com, there's a contact link and I'm happy to take, you know, questions or whatever. Hmm. Right. Thank you. Wonderful. All right. Well, have a great night and we'll uh, perhaps we'll talk again sometime. I look forward to it. What stands out for me in this conversation is the journey Josh went on from believing leadership was something you're born with to teaching it. From being fired by the board of Submedia to getting curious about the nature of leadership and the different ways to teach it, getting an MBA and not teaching leadership for its own sake, but to improve people's lives and their ability to impact the world around them. And his emphasis on practice, honing in on what exercises enable specific skill development and structuring the skill progression to lay a foundation of self-awareness. So much like my own work, it really affirmed my approach and I'm really grateful for that. And though I'm not doing them as diligently, my relationship to burpees has changed dramatically. I think doing them for me rather than part of an exercise routine or circuit and not trying to do them super fast like in Tabata, doing them my way, it's made a huge difference. 
And one of the things I'm taking to heart is this idea of competition being more about reaching potential and continually getting better. Can I do more burpees today than I did yesterday? And I love that his top predictor for success is the number of iterations, how much you practice, getting good at something. I've certainly found that in my podcasting. I feel more confident as I approach 30 episodes. And it's amazing to me that I've come this far, to be honest. And I've put you know systems in place for talking to my guests and following up with them prior to the release date, etc. Speaking of which, I've got one, maybe two episodes before I go on a break. And there's something I'd like to ask you, and this feels important. It feels like the future of Tall Poppy is in your hands. I want to know what works for you, what's valuable, and what to phase out. Please take a few minutes to do the Tall Poppy listener survey. It's at surveymonkey.com forward slash r forward slash tall poppy. The link will be in the show notes until the end of June. I really appreciate your support and your helping determine the, what direction to take this podcast in because it's you that keeps it going you know seeing the how many listeners from all the different countries it, it's yeah so the US now more than listeners in Australia Japan and Germany more than Canada and New Zealand and the UK edging up plus Sweden and South Africa it really blows my mind mm-hmm. so I want to know what you think the future of top poppy is in your hands Thanks in advance for doing the Tall Poppy listener survey. And of course, thanks for listening, for being part of this paradigm shift, seeing our leadership practices as part of the way we do business, work, and life. <laughs>